Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are with Rich Little, who is a serving military pilot and also has a company called Battlefields to Business and a charity called Homes Fit for Heroes. And Rich has a checkered military career, um, in his words. Don't quite know what that means, but we can talk about that. As a commando and a SAR pilot, but also one as a businessman running a property business for 15 years alongside his military career. So Rich, welcome to the show. Rick, thanks for having me. Awesome. So talk to me a little bit about your bio there. So um, what do you mean by checkered military career? Yeah, so I'm um, pretty much really. I've I've very much tried to enjoy my military career. I've, I've haven't necessarily taken the the standard path that say a lot of uh, military commissioned officers will do, which is a a path through career progression uh, to achieve higher ranks. I've very much tried to enjoy my flying. I joined as a joined as a pilot because really I I wanted to fly. That was my dream as a child, and that's what I wanted to go into. So I've very much tried to follow that vision and stay flying as long as possible. And what that's meant is it's meant over. 21 years which I've been in the military I've I've seen service in many many different places from all of your Afghanistans your Iraqs to the jungles of Africa when we did a lot of hostage rescue work and you know various places around the world but it's very much been my uh, choice to go to a lot of these hence the the checkeredness really I've jumped around it's had its downfall should we say in my personal life uh, but it also made me uh, it made the the running of the business a lot more challenging, and the, the 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 starting of the business came after one of one of kind of the Iraq, the early Iraq tours when I thought actually maybe maybe I can't do this, maybe I can't just keep deploying away from home and actually spending spending six months a year at true conflict. You know, we were Iraq back in two thousand and three was technically war, um, and initially I thought this is fantastic, this is what I've trained for, but it does become tiresome it takes its toll on you your body your family your your mental capacity and it was really after that that's that I started getting into property uh, once we'd come out of Iraq I realized I still actually enjoyed flying and actually the, the the and I wanted to continue and that's when I went into different roles within the, the flying world shall we say so jumping around again so what what is your role in I mean just so the listeners know what, yeah. what, what do you actually do in the military right so I was a, initially a helicopter pilot and uh, what's called the commando helicopter force so our role was really to fly troops to the front line we were getting troops from uh, certainly back in a uh, back in Iraq in those days we were taking troops to the to the conflict so we were coming off the ships and invading what was called the Alfor peninsula which is into iraq so really the the role of the our job is to get troops to the front line and to where the action is so quite in the big chinook helicopters that's in that was in commando seeking helicopters okay. so it was one step down from chinook uh, and they're also involved in a lot of the what are called maritime counter-terrorism operations so the smaller carry up to 18 people fully armed uh, troops to the actual heart of the conflict, so it's not. No, the Sea Kings, the ones that they use for the um, the rescues over in you know, in the ocean and and what have you for. Um, and that's exactly it. Yes, yeah. the search and rescue, the SAR job, which is a job that I went into post kind of the Iraq period. I then did search and rescue helicopter flying. So I was traditionally a helicopter pilot, search and rescue mm. helicopter flying. So the same as the Coast Guard user. Yeah? Absolutely, the Coast Guard have just bought a new aircraft, but in essence, the same and. Um, 
yeah, as I, I did that for three years as well off the west coast of Scotland. And my God, you see some you see some interesting interesting sites and situations that people get themselves into. Mm. Um, and then following that, really, I went into then fixed wing flying, uh, flying large tanker aircraft, and then now I'm into training. So I now train the new pilots coming through. So Rich, before we go into the business side of things, really interested yeah. in, you know, how, how do you transition from being a helicopter pilot into fixed wing? Is it, I mean, I know obviously, you know, generally the controls are going to be very different, but yeah. if you're a pilot, is it, sort of just your way of thinking so the transition is easier or do you have to literally start again from scratch you so there's um there's there's kind of a well-trodden path it's there's very few people do it and again that comes i suppose back to when i say a, a bit of a checkered pass i've always sort of had that vision to try something new to move into some an area new rather than being i was very comfortable flying commander helicopters yes we were always in in kind of conflict zones but actually the physical task of flying was relatively straightforward hence i then went into the search and rescue the new challenge and once i'd got to the end of that and on the on paper the challenge is ridiculous from picking up injured walkers to you know ladies who go into labor on ferries where all of a sudden you've got to get them off you know there was a, a whole raft of of different types of of search and rescue well we you, got to the end that, of, you do that whilst based in the military yeah so i was based the west so roll back a few years all military search and rescue when you, you mentioned the Coast Guards, all search and rescue was military. It's only in the past few years it's transitioned to the Coast Guard. Um, and it was really on the back of that when it was transitioning from the military, from Air Force and Navy to Coast Guard, I thought, I need a new challenge. And I looked to see what was available in the flying. So basically in the military, we have, we look for jobs, shall we say. So you look for different roles and you kind of, if you've got the experience, you can go and try them. And there was a role in the, the for fixed wing transition to move from helicopter flying into fixed wing. You had to go on certain assessments, certain courses, while still obviously in the military. And in essence, I, I passed those and I transitioned then into to, to transfer from military helicopter flying into military fast jet flying. So it's a, it's a case of if you've got the skill, if you've got the desire and you've got the want, you can go and do it. However, you are going back into training. You don't go right back to the beginning. You kind of jump in halfway. And again, that has its challenges because you've been in a comfortable environment, something that you can do relatively easily. You know, I could fly helicopters with my eyes closed. And it was, it, I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but it becomes like driving a car. Mm. And all of a sudden, you're back in that training environment. You're back learning something new and you realize, you know, you're a student again. You're every every trip that you go on every flight that you go on is assessed and you run the risk if you fail that if you do something wrong or compromise safety in any way you're gone you are out that is you know the military have no time for that it's eighteen thousand pounds per hour uh, to fly one of these training jets and that's the cost of kind of fuel the maintenance that's what it so any error that you make they haven't got the time or the money to keep repeating that to get you through it's very much a case if you don't pass it first time you get another go at it if you don't pass it then you're out so what are you flying now at the moment so i've now moved to uh what's what's called the Takano training aircraft um which is based up in linton on ooze near york now that retires from service um in october this year and that's kind of the catalyst for my by transition outside. So that, that leaves service. The military have bought a new aircraft that's taken its place. And this is the training aircraft. So it trains the new fast jet pilots coming through this course, uh, coming through the service. So it's all Navy, all Air Force, and a lot of Middle Eastern nations as well. So we train a lot of um, Saudi Arabian uh, nationals. We train a lot of Qatari pilots. They all can, because they've bought British aircraft. 
Rich, how long do you think it would take somebody? I know a lot of people in property. We're going to talk about property um, yeah. in a little while because um, I know your transition into property has been, um, you know, you've been doing it for quite some time. But how long does it take a, an average person to learn to fly a helicopter? So to learn to fly, to, to learn to fly a helicopter, just the physical act of flying would take you probably around eight to nine months. If you are joining the military to learn to fly and become what's called combat ready. So that is when you are not just fly, but you can operate it in the role that you're taking. Guys now joining the military realistically aren't combat ready for five to six years. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's a long transition. So we are, you know, people have to stay motivated for that, that entire period of time. And it is difficult, you know, when we're seeing young lads come through. The military training system at the moment has a lot of flaws in it. It's not working as it should. And that's a completely different, conversation it's not working as it should so it's not as smooth as it possibly could but it also allows people to to think this this job probably isn't forever you know it it gives them the time to think well actually maybe i'll fly for 10 years and then i need to go and do something different and that really was the seed that was sown in me you know back in 2003 when i thought i need to find something else that i can do alongside so should the worst happen I've got something to point to. You know, it's really interesting talking to you because I think, you know, when we talk to, I talk to a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life, you know, from, from everything, from people that have just left university to people that are on the, the highest corporate paid jobs that there are. Mm. And it seems to me that there's a common trait. Yeah. Everybody wants to leave their job <laughs> to go into property. And I think, you know, I'm listening to what you're saying now, and I'm thinking of all of these transferable skills that you've got, that you could go into civilian life, leave your military career, go into civilian life, carry on doing what you've trained to do, but yet you still wanted to go down a different path. Yeah, it's, it's very much a different, uh, a different one. And certainly, you know, I hear that as well, that people want to leave their jobs. And I think that's, you know, in a way, uh, I feel that's thrust down a lot of people's throats, should we say, these days when they're listening to, you know, property education, et cetera, that's, that's being thrown around the internet. And I sent, uh, sometimes I, I do disagree with that. They're, they're, they're saying everybody hates their jobs, get into property. It's the, you know, sell this, that sell this dream. And the crux of it was I didn't, I, did, I enjoyed my job, thoroughly loved it. I'm, and I just wanted to get into property more for the choice, should we say, you know, it was definitely me the choice and the option that, if I wanted to stop flying, I could. It wasn't that I wanted to give up flying and I wanted to leave the military. It was very much a case of it's given me that choice. So when I leave, I don't have to follow the well-trodden path into, say, commercial aviation. You know, and a lot of our guys, even though they're helicopter pilots, they, they move into your Virgins, your British Airways, your large commercial aviation, or you go and fly for the Coast Guard. For me, property was the choice and the option. If I elected to leave, it would give me something to, to then do without following that path it's not saying i don't want to follow the path of commercial aviation it's saying i don't have to yeah absolutely but you've got choices which is a great thing so and, yeah. where where are you at the moment i know you're still serving um, yeah. are you working your way out now are you um are you working towards going into civilian life when does your service finish yeah so i'm i'm very much now in that last what, what was the last 12 months so i stopped um pretty much stopped working full-time for the military in in October, November this year. Um, and then I'll transition what they call transition into civilian life, which is uh, a fully leave in March next year. At that point, that's that's me 
100% out of the military, 21 years mm. uh, done, uh, and you are classed as a veteran, and I'll get a pension from the military from that day onwards. And is that full uh, service, Rich, 21 years? For an, for an officer, it's subtly different. That is my full service. Yes, it is. Um, it's not traditionally a lot of people here serving 22 years, etc., which is what it used to be, but that is my full service, yes. Okay. And what, um, what's your rank at the moment then? So I'm, a, I'm a, what's called a flight lieutenant, but I'm also what's called a professional aviator. So it means that I've um, elected not to be promoted, but stay within the flying world. And it, it, you jump onto kind of a separate pay spine. So why would you elect not to be promoted, Rich? What was the motivation behind that? Not to what, sorry? Not to be promoted. I wanted to stay flying and it was very much that, 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 you know, as simple as that. So traditionally people would join the military, they fly because that's their passion. But the second you get promoted and you go into the senior squadron commands and things, you lo- you stop flying. You become more of a manager of men um, at a higher level mm. uh, than you do at the, the lower level. I prefer the, the small management, the small leadership of small teams. So I was flight commanding. So we would take, a small 50 person team to different parts of the world possibly to conduct operations rather than going into the higher level management. And when they're in that position, it's very much more strategic paperwork, administrative roles rather than the physical act of cockpit flying. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. So how easy is it? How easy do the military make it for you to get you through that transition of going into civilian life? Yeah, so there's quite a well-trodden, uh, well, a, a well-looked-after system now with with looking after the veterans and coming out of the service. Um, and they do look after you. They give you the time off work to do retraining, requalifications, or to turn certain military qualifications into civilian qualifications. And it was kind of that which I, when I was doing that transition, that I thought, mm, do you know what? There's there's an opportunity here for the entrepreneurial mind which the military is full of but they aren't offered kind of the the business training or the property training to do this so that was how battlefields the business first started actually looking at the resettlement of individuals because those individuals yes they get resettled they're given the time off they're given the opportunity to do retraining but it's very much into uh, like vocational skills so a lot of people may go and do plumbing courses or do electricians courses so big vocational courses there's management courses or there's project management or project management level courses there's funding available to do those courses by the by the military and in a, the key really is that you get the time off shall we say so that the, the military will promote in that last two years service you to go and retrain as something new and do they bring civilians in to do those courses or is it a case of you have to go out and find them well, there's, they have certain recognized training providers, and that's almost the, the, the key is becoming one of those recognized training providers. Because once you are one of those recognized training providers, they are funded and subsidized by the military. So uh, the, the, the bigger picture really for Battlefields to Business is actually, as say an umbrella company, we will then manage, let's say, affiliates companies who say do plumbing, electricians, what have you. And actually in one room, we may have a number of trades who possibly don't want to get into um, property investing, but all of a sudden in one room, we have a number of very motivated ex-military people who we know how they work, you know, and that's the key is actually, I enjoy working with this group of people with that mindset, the military so, Rich, mindset. Let's go back a little bit now. I know that um, <laughs> I've got a, a very good um, close friend of mine. You may know him. I don't know. His name is Alex Siri. He does um, a very similar program for police officers and that's called shifts to success. And I think it's, almost you know the same yes. 
same blueprint only from you know different backgrounds so going back to yours what at what point did you decide to to bring this to the table and how hard was it to get it all authorized with your i don't know your commanding officers well i mean it, it when you say bring it to the table we are just bringing it to the table it is right. very it is very much in its infancy um and a lot of that was looking at the rules the regulations what we could what we couldn't do what we can offer etc and they're not all of those hoops haven't yet been jumped through and it's interesting that you mentioned about shifts to success and alex and i had a had a conversation not long ago because we are very much doing the same model but for mm. different demographics and because we've seen the the, the power and the, the quality of these individuals leaving and it's it's then using our skills that we've kind of accidentally learned should we say you know i accidentally grew this business rather than than, than falling into it. but actually it's then to to offer this as a quick training course to these individuals and say you know this is an option don't necessarily go down that route and it's very much what alex is doing with the police officers that i want to do with the the ex-military we have had a conversation is it, is it all ex-military or is it just specifically for the raf or no no all ex-military Yes, yeah, so it's all ex-military, all three services um, who are entitled to resettlement. So all three services will be eligible to come on, on our training courses. Anybody can come on them. The, the key really is the fact that with the ex-military, we're then looking to harness funding, which is available for them. Right, so okay. So currently then, if mm -hmm. they wanted to come onto your program, yeah. would they at the moment have to pay for it themselves? No, no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. They would they'd get the initial training 75% funded. Oh, that's awesome because I do know that the police would certainly not do that. Yeah, <laughs> certainly yeah. my experience. So that that's good. That's a move forward, isn't it? It is absolutely. And there's more funding available when we get to certain uh, levels of. Uh, we've basically got to be inspected, and you've got to get certain uh, levels of um, certification, which we are working towards. And we've really tailored our training in order to become certified. So rather than just saying this is our training package, this is what you're getting. We've looked at what you require in order to become certified and access the funding. And then we've tailored the training in order to jump through the relevant hoops. So I know this is generally going to be a business course. So you're going to have, or have you started this yet? Have you had your first cohort yet? So we've had, the, we've had some training. We've had, yeah. the, we've, I, we've had some trial um, people that, that came in to really to test the courses with, to okay. test went down and get the feedback from that right and first active paid for courses will go of are, are now live on our website and they are uh, starting in september okay so let's talk a little bit about these courses then so how many people are you bringing into the room yeah so initially we'd like to keep it to a, a small around 20 people per room um so it'll be 20 people per room and we're we're targeting four areas of the uk so we're, we'll be delivering in newcastle leeds uh, Basingstoke and um, Coventry. Okay. And in terms of getting this out there, so yep. for people that are in the military at the moment, I mean, do you, I don't know how it works. Things have yep. changed a lot since uh, way back when I was um, a junior leader in the, yeah. uh, in the army <laughs> catering corps. Um, is there a website, like a, an internal military website that you can advertise on? How do they get to hear about your program? Well, we've only recently gone live in the past few weeks. So we've got um, basically, the, the company itself is formed by two ex-military, myself and another chap who's, uh, who I work with for 
God, probably about 10 years I was working with him and a third party, which is an education company. So they're very much running the, the management of the training itself. We are doing the delivery and the, the professional content, but the education company is very much managing the, the marketing, the advertising, etc. Now they will now we've, we've tested the course. We wanted to ensure that the, the product was correct, should we say? So that hence why we wanted to do it to a, few, a trial audience first. And the key there is because you get it wrong with a, a group of military people, word spreads like wildfire. You know, with with a uh, with ex-military or serving military, one post on a on a veteran's Facebook page, and that's that's reputation mm-hmm. ruined. So we really had to ensure that it was correct. So then, marketing and and advertising now will start in earnest, and it will be around the the standard military publications of your Navy news, your air force news and soldier magazine. They are and, and Facebook and Facebook obviously is going to be extensive marketing, but on the, on the targeted group. So it won't mm-hmm. just be flooding Facebook. It will be very much on the military ex military uh, Facebook pages and groups and Facebook advertising to target that demographic. So what's your competition like rich? Is there other people doing this or is this quite unique? There's, there's other people doing business training you know, and property training. So it is business training. So it's to, to, to harness people into business. And then on the back of that, really both myself and the other uh, ex-military chap are both very much property. Now we don't want to sell there's another property training course, but we, on the back of that, we will look to hopefully harness and work with individuals to maybe go into to property, but it's not being sold as such. So um, what's the content then? So, you know, you say you, you target this, it's a business program. Yeah. What does that look like? What can the, what can the people expect to get? Yeah. So it's really from everything from, from the starting up of a business. So from the establishment of a business, the accounting, the tax. So it's the first part of the morning is just that, that basic establishment, which I feel when I look around people who think, I'm going to start a business. They actually get that front end very wrong. And actually that initially they don't possibly see it that they may have the, you know, the codes when they've registered their company incorrect or their accountants, they haven't used an account. They've tried to do it themselves, or they haven't just ensured that shareholders agreement when there's a few of them, those basic things haven't been done correctly. And it never really bites them until three or four years down the line when they have a falling out with their business partner, one walks away and all of a sudden there's, there's a mess. And I've seen this a number of times with, you know, friends and colleagues of mine who've had businesses that have subsequently gone in different directions. So really this, the, the first part of the day will be very much on the, the business setup, how you go around starting a business, setting up the business. We then look at, uh, we then look at marketing of a business, look at what people want to do if they've got an idea or if they haven't got an idea. If they haven't got an idea, that's when we'll bring it in some, um, some testimonial, or well, not necessarily testimonials, but we'll run a few sessions on property. And actually, that's when we will discuss the property element of it, because that very much is where my my business is, is in property and in larger development. So that gives me the opportunity in the afternoon to discuss property. That property can be a business. It's not just a buy to, 90% of the military have buy to let properties and think they are landlords, because it's one of those things that we've traditionally done throughout our service. I, you'll live in a property you'll move to somewhere else, you'll just rent that out, and all of a sudden people think they're landlords. So we want to try and take that education at that point and say... Well, they right. they kind of are, aren't they? If you've got a property that you rent out, does, well, that, yeah. not, does that not put you <laughs> under the landlord bracket? Very much so. Yes, you are a landlord, but it's, it's almost saying to them, you're not just, we can turn this into a business rather yeah. than... So a, we can turn you from a landlord to an investor, perhaps. Correct. So that'll be the early part of the afternoon. Uh, and then the latter part of the afternoon is then really going into... Um, the 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 finer aspects of it so the marketing of the of the business the getting the business the growth um and then really we'll we'll then 
leave the evening bits section for a bit of networking, a bit of uh, discussion on other topics. And generally what we've found certainly with the trial groups that we've run is people do then dive down the property avenue. That's where mm-hmm. they want to go. That Because again, it's, it's a very easy thing to say. Actually, property investing currently in the UK is doing exceptionally well. If it's done well in these different strategies, the investment the the returns are quite significant if you set it up at the front end like a business you are an investor and you are running a, you are a business and you aren't just an accidental landlord possibly like yeah. you've been in the past yeah i mean i think you know do, how long is this course for rich firstly so it's what so it's initially one day so we've got the funding for one a one day course and then the further funding will come for uh, basically weekend courses which will come in time Okay, cool. I mean, my team have just arrived. I don't know if anyone can hear this. So I'm sat in my office and I'm supposed to have soundproof walls here. I don't know if you can hear the team just arriving, Rich, but it's just turned nine o'clock. So everyone's just landing and all the keys are getting thrown on the tables and all the uh, (laughs) kettles and coffee machines are going, hey, we like to keep this real. You know, this is, this is, you know, the nature of business. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's talk about your property and experience yourself then so you've got full service you're 21 years in the military you've also forged a property business yourself so talk to me a little bit about that and how that looks rich yes i mean i i started out like as like i just said with majority military people as an accidental landlord and that's exactly what happened i lived in my house i moved to was deployed to another location rented it out boom and i thought i knew everything about it and I, i just continued to buy a property everywhere I served and rented out little buy to lets uh, more from the heart because they were properties that I lived in shall we say so they weren't necessarily bought on investment choices uh, and that's how it started and I built this this small portfolio of five six seven buy to lets just as I moved around the country classically saving up deposits as I moved or, or deployed because again you'll deploy for six months you'll come back and you'll be very cash rich at that moment in time buying little buy to lets and moving on now around the 2009 10 i got a little bit of property education uh, and actually thought i gotta need to do this a little bit more formally and it was at that point i turned it into a a business should we say or more of a formal business looking at different strategies looking at hmo strategies actually realizing that trading properties or sourcing that it was then and packaging was an option when i was being offered from my building teams, different properties, and the, the portfolio group. So I've traded and sourced and packaged properties. Currently, my portfolio currently stands around the 21 buy-to-let mark um, and currently seven HMOs. And again, I've sold HMOs in different parts of the com- country, which I've, um, instead of hold, possibly now I would hold them and put different management teams in place and keep them. So I sold quite an extensive portfolio in Glasgow. My portfolio now of HMOs is very much in the Yorkshire region. And a lot of those have been, um, development to HMOs. So again, I've, instead of just do, buying a house and converting it, I've actually done large commercial conversions to HMOs. So I've got two questions off the back of that. First of all, how hard is it in the RAF to be able to run a second business? Do you need to jump through hoops? Do you need permissions, etc.? Yeah, you should. You you are, obviously you do need permission to run a second com- to run a company. Now the the difference being. There's a lot of rules and regulations about being paid twice, and that's kind of the, the, the key. Now, I'm not being paid twice. My company, I do not t- draw a penny from the company. All of the, the, the profit just remains in that. That's purely down to the fact that I'm a, a high-rate taxpayer. If I took money out of that, I'm just going to be – because um, it, it's more efficient, should we say, at the moment for me just to hold that within the company and grow that. So, yes, you need permission um, to run a company 
while serving. But a lot of that's down to drawing the income. So it's not a, it's not a, a large troop. It's simply a request from your commanding officer. And is it generally passed? Yeah, I've never heard of it. Uh, otherwise, you know, as long as it doesn't take your uh, mind and your focus away from your day job and you can show that you are, um, you know, you're not giving huge amount of hours to another job, should we say, because the majority of people who say, I want to go and work for somebody else, traditionally, you know, a lot of the big army lads have gone to be bouncers, should we say, you know, and that's classed as working somewhere else for a second income. Starting a business as an investor or whatever you want to do is subtly different because... Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're not going to work for somebody else and draw an income or be paid for that service. You are I imagine being a bouncer is probably, um, I mean, because you can get yourself in awful lots of trouble uh, that, yeah. and all sorts of things. And that was one of those things, you know, you go up to, you know, a lot of the, the, the large army bases, a lot of the lads, that's exactly what they do. They'd go and become bouncers. Or people would do plumbing courses and then they'd go and subby on, on building sites as plumbers and be paid cash in hand. And, mm. you know, so there was a lot of issues there with military men being paid twice or incorrectly. So, yes, permissions do have to be granted. But you're requesting it in a different sense. You're requesting it, right, I'm starting a business as, a, as an investor, of property as a property investor to grow a property portfolio. Um, and it's, as I said, 90% of the, the armed forces have buy-to-let properties. They yeah. possibly just haven't done it as businesses. I know in the police, it's certainly a lot harder. You'd have to put your request in and go through all of the HR teams and then go to the senior management. Then you'd have to have an interview. Uh, and then if it was a property, and I forged you know, a lot of my property portfolio whilst I was a serving police officer, yeah. they had the stipulation that you had to put it under management. If you had property, they would not allow you to run it yourself because they deemed that as a conflict of interest. So it's not as easy in the police. Um, in fact, it's quite hard to get a, a second career or even forge a career outside of the job because they want to keep you. They don't want you going off doing anything else bizarre. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I know how hard it is, Rich, you know, but doing a development, just doing one. So you're buying a property, you're going to turn it into HMO as you've done several times. Mm. How did you manage to juggle all of that whilst flying fast jets and helicopters? Well, I'll tell you, the, uh, I, I'd, I'd done one when I was, so the, the first one I did, which kind of cut my teeth on, on development, was actually development to a seven one-bedroom flats. And I did that in what was called post-operational deployment leave. So when you've been away for six months, you'll get, a, a, you'll get an operational bonus. And that was, I was in Afghanistan for that period. I came back, so, and I'd, I'd kind of identified prior to coming back a site or a building that I wanted to convert. So what I thought was I, I laid the foundations while I was away, and actually, when I got back, it was a relatively straightforward period because I had quite a significant period of time off because it was post-operational employment. And I ran the development then. But of course, the trouble was at that point, I thought, wow, this is, um, this is quite easy to juggle alongside of my time. And then the next one, I was offered a property when I was in um, on what was called Op Shader. So I was in, in, um, in Qatar in the Middle East, and we were uh, running operations over, over Syria. And I was offered this building while I was there and uh, over email, I knew the building, I knew where it was, but um, other than that location, I'd never been in it. I'd never done any huge due diligence on it. So this one became a challenge and this was probably the most balls I've ever juggled at one time. So I was fully still in operation with another three months to go. And I saw this building and it was an opportunity, a classic opportunity too good to miss, but I, I had a, enough teams in, in, in place or enough trust builders and enough a management agent there who could just go and do viewings for me. It was a derelict building, literally derelict um, commercial building. Um, and I negotiated the price to a point where I, I thought I'm going to buy this and I bought it. It was 
done within um, Exchange and Complete very quickly. Planning permission was submitted, so all of this was done while deployed. Um, all of the planning, all the architect's drones were all done via email, via telephone, using teams that were on the ground. Um, and by the time I got back to the UK, planning permission had been passed and we were ready to, to go in and start work. So that was a difficult one. So don't get me wrong, it is not easy. However, in a way, I was slightly calmer doing it because I had set periods of time that I knew I could work on the development and set periods of time when I couldn't even access a mobile phone or a computer because we were in secret locations. So actually, in a way, I quite like that. Where in the UK, I'll never have my phone off me and I'll be answering emails as they come in or I'll answer this and answer that. And I find I'm juggling literally juggling where there it was very much you were you were time blocking the classic time blocking your diary how did that make you feel did it make you feel a little bit anxious because you couldn't get any at updates the, and you know what at the time it did at the time and i felt quite stressed about it thinking where's this going up i can't get updates I'm, I'm not sure but actually in hindsight now or following that that period when i was back i, I quite liked it and it meant that i knew everybody knew i would answer between x you know let's call yeah. it between 2 p.m. and 3 p.m. and then I wouldn't answer anything else until midnight or one in the morning. You know, it was very blocked time. And actually, people, the people I was using and working with, understood that very quickly. Um, and for me, it, 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 in hindsight, it was fantastic. And I wish I could. I do block my time now, and I do try and manage my time very well. But you still can't get away from always being contactable. Always, you'll mm -hmm. see something pop up on your phone. And you think, right, I'll not answer emails until I till I get back and the amount of times I've stopped for a coffee and thought, right, I'm now going to answer this. And then 45 minutes later, I'm still tapping replies to emails on my phone. Oh, I'm the same on holiday. You know, we go yeah. away, we, we go on cruise ships because of my, my circumstances with my son. And I always go and say, right, I don't need to be online. I've got loads of people. I've got a big team. Everything's in order. And then the minute I'm on the ship, I'm going straight over to the library to buy the internet package because yeah. I find that I get a little bit more stressed out and more anxious if I don't have access to the internet. I'd rather know what's going on and then I know that I can, I can relax and enjoy myself rather than having the what's going, you know, is there anything going yeah. on? Do I need to know anything? Um, and that's, that's exactly, and I think the only reason it worked was because I couldn't change that. I could not just get, you know, if I had the choice, if it was like you said there on holiday or on a cruise ship where the option is there to take the internet, I couldn't ignore that. I would have to like you take that option and because I, I, I know I can get online. It's like now on, on planes, I used to love getting on a plane because you knew for that eight hours over the Atlantic, you were uncontactable. Well, now you can get air, you can get Wi-Fi on board, you know, yeah. your A380s and things. So at least when we were deployed on operations, your phone is off. You know, that is it. You can't because you are compromising Rich, do you ever get on a plane and think, yeah, I could do better than that? Yeah, I do critique the landings always, yeah. <laughs> I often wonder that. I, think, I wonder if pilots say, oh, you, know, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have done that. I'd, I'd have done it better than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is it happen. a case of once you can fly a jet, you can fly any plane? Uh, not the physical act of flying is actually relatively straightforward. What, what, what changes drastically is kind of the layout of the, uh, the controls, the the, the gauges and the computer, it's now very computerized. So like modern airliners, you know, you're not even flying that. You're almost a systems program. You're a so you like when you see the movies and they come out and say, are there any pilots on board? I mean, is it as simple as that? Could you just jump in and say, yeah, come on, guys, I'll take over? 
we could do a certain level, should we say? <laughs> <laughs> I've digressed. I've gone straight back into flying. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. So I know it's, um, it's hard finding building teams and you've done this remotely. And a lot of people talk an awful lot about where do I get the building teams from? How do I know if they're credible? So how did you do that whilst you were away and deployed? Yeah. I mean, and that, that very much came down to one, initially one trusted builder, but again, it's, it's that, that constant change, should we say? So that one trusted builder that I had, that I had for my my first build, um, or the the block of flats I'm talking about, he was very good at the time. Then subsequently, we didn't. I, I don't know what's the wrong term. We didn't fall out, should we say? But there was a few things that thought I'll not use few little things I thought no, I'm not comfortable with the way you're doing business or the way you're operating your team. So we moved on. So it's that constant change initially brilliant builder fantastic took on a little bit too more much work spread himself a little bit thin mm. actually the quality started to deteriorate you know, so i moved to a new a lot, builder Rich. that's that yeah. happens an awful lot you know when the thing is when people ask for recommendations now i don't recommend my team yeah um, i said no i don't recommend i do recommend my team they're great that's yeah. why i work with them but if i continue to recommend my building team and my trades i would never have them on site because they'll be off out doing other things. And that's generally what happens when you get a good builder. I think they probably last with you around about two years before they start getting too busy and then you lose them. You have to find somebody else. And it's that's exactly just, it. Yeah. It is. It's just the way it is. It's just the way that the industry works. Yeah. And then this other, then what happened was I moved to the build, which I'm talking about. So I elected, I wasn't going to use this individual or this team for my, the, the build, which I, the, the commercial development, which I built bought when I was in uh, the Middle East. So again, I thought, right, I'm going to have to find a new one. Came from a few recommendations. And basically from the architect who I'd used um, to draw up the plans, I'd just been chatting to him. We put it, we hadn't put it out to formal tender yet, but we, the name had cropped up a few times from both him and a local letting agent and a local trusted guy on the ground who I used regularly. So the same name had cropped up. And basically I approached this, this building team, asked them if they wanted to come and uh, assess the work. And bear in mind, by this point, I was back... We got to the end of planning permission. We'd got it QS. We knew where we were. And that's when I arrived back in the UK. So I then met them on site, had a look at some of his other work. And lo and behold, he then, he then got the job. He then did that development uh, for me. And he's still the chap I use today. Mm, awesome. I know it's hard as well managing property, especially when you're on the ground um, and you're actually doing it. You know, we've got a big portfolio, we've got a big team, but it's still challenging. We've got loads of challenges right now. Challenges never go away. How do you manage your portfolio? Because you're still serving at the moment. How do you, do you get people to do that for you? Absolutely. So all bar one property, really, I completely outsource for management. Um, and it was something initially, again, I, I took under my own wing thinking I can do that. I'm not going to pay the classic. I'm not paying management fee for somebody mm. to inspect it every six months. You know, that, that, that short sighted mentality. And then I realized that, you know, I'll take the stress away. The little maintenance issues, the little phone calls in the middle of the night, et cetera. Especially when I got into the larger HMOs, you know, when you're dealing with kind of 14 people in one building, um, it became difficult. So it was all outsourced by one building. And I'll talk about this one building quickly because that was almost an experiment, should we say. So I thought I really identified, and it came out of the Homes Fit for Heroes, the housing of the ex-servicemen and the homelessness problem in the UK. So I, I noticed how homelessness was increasing, the use of universal credit or the universal credit being implemented in the UK and LHA disappearing. So a lot of landlords were jumping out of that market. Um, and I, I took on a, a LHA, shall we say, or universal credit, 10 bed HMO, 
quite local to me. And I thought I'm going to manage that. And I'm going to really to learn the process. I wanted to learn the actual process of why universal credit was catching so many people out, why so many people were disgruntled with it and why it wasn't working. Um, and in liaison with the council, so a direct uh, housing officer in the council. So what I've got one contact there who looks, who assists me. I manage that one alone. Now that is a lot of work. Um, not a lot of work, should we say? Um, it probably takes a couple of phone calls every every other day, and I visit the property once a week. You know, the property's only fifteen minute drive from me. But what that does is actually it's allowed me to understand the universal credit system, understand a, an area of the HMO market and the and the housing market which is very very under um, kind of satisfied. Should we say? There's a lot of a lot of landlords jumping out of it because it is difficult, but now I understand it. It's actually an area which I'm considering increasing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's admirable. And I know a lot of people wouldn't go down that particular route um, because, you know, path of least resistance and all. But yeah. we did have, you know, a crisis. There are far too many homeless people on the streets. And regardless of what circumstances took them there, nobody deserves to live like that. And everybody deserves a roof over their head, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you know what we're providing. So the the HMO I've the HMO I've got is very much that, and and it was in liaison with the council. What we've we've done is we've we've got a halfway house. So what it is is in essence, it's a bare bare. It's the roof over their head. It's the first roof over their head following homelessness. So it's minimal. Um, there's nothing in there. The council will furnish it. And this was again one of the pros um, of of this this model. So it's a very, very very bare property, nothing in the rooms, carpet, white walls, very plain, um, shared facilities, um, shared facilities in the property, and uh, and that's it. They will come in, their, their claim will be managed by the council through universal credit, and then universal credit will be paid directly to me. But the key is that it's the first step. So it's that step to show, right, can you manage yourself, just your general being instead of being homeless, quite frankly, uh, and just live with others and be pleasant, manage a tenancy, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll find that some people physically can't, whether that be through a drug and alcohol addiction, at which point they're removed and taken to specialist units for that, or we try to, but again, there's huge issues with that. Or it may be completely other, you know, released from prison, they ended up on the streets, they do want to reform themselves, so they need an address. Now, the benefit of that, you do get a variety of tenants. We've had the drug dealers in there, uh, we've had the violent crime, but actually, again, with the council working, good liaison with the council, it's actually handled, yes, I'm still technically managing it, I'm on the end of the telephone, I'll get a telephone call from the police telling me something's happened, it's quite quickly dealt with and cleaned up. It's not for the faint-hearted, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, now we've just got somebody who's recently been uh, arrested for attempted murder. Now, I'll just I'll not, I'll not go into too many details of that, but he was arrested for attempted murder. He's now on remand for that. Whether he did it or not, I do not know. But at least his rent's paid for 52 weeks mm. while he's on remand. So I don't need to worry about that. But it's not for the faint-hearted, but we do something has to be done about this problem because it's not going away. So Rich, um, your, your charity Homes Fit for Heroes isn't just then for ex-service personnel? The plan was definitely for ex-servicemen and that's very much where I would place my emphasis, quite frankly, is on this homeless ex-servicemen. However, it's exceptionally difficult to, um, to almost segregate. You are almost segregating out a lot of the... Um, the population, should we say. So when I looked at to house these individuals or, or in these properties, I will get given a list from the council of 
suitable tenant. So I have stipulations of what I will and will not allow. And that may be, you know, I will allow a reformed drug and alcohol problem, but not within the last 12 months. So I have very tight stipulations. So the, the council liaison, they will send me a list of people that they think are eligible. They may be known homeless people, or they may be recent releases from prison or whatever. They who's, will send testing me them? who's testing them for the, the drugs is, and the alcohol? The, well, that comes from the housing officer in the council and whether they've been, um, they've engaged. So if it's an ex-drug and alcohol, we would want to have seen them um, liaising with Horizon, which is the local um, drug and alcohol rehabilitation. So as long as they've had contact and, you know, have worked well with Horizon and proof that they haven't been on it for an X period of time, then I will accept them. If they're current or known to be current within the local area, because again, it's a very small area, I just wouldn't accept them. So what I say is I get this list, they'll have who they are, what they've done, what, why they're homeless, et cetera, on this piece of paper. And I will prioritize them generally as ex-servicemen first, and then the lesser problems, shall we say, as we go down the list. So but, where does the problem lie, Rich, with ex-servicemen when, um, you know, th there's this transition period of coming out yeah. of the, the military and then into civilian life, and then all of a sudden, bang, it's, you know, your life changes. And I know you become part of your environment, you become institutionalized almost. Where is the missing link here that, you know, sort of prevents housing for ex-servicemen? Is it something that is individual to each person or is there a fundamental problem in the system somewhere? Um, it, it is individual, shall we say, but there is, we, certainly for the past 10 to 15 years, we, we've, we're, we're a victim of where we've been as a, as a nation. So we'd find that actually as, as a military person, you never need to buy a house. Okay. You never need to, you don't have to, you can live in provided accommodation, you know, in block accommodation, which is now all on suite accommodation. You can then get married and you can be given a married quarter. Um, and actually the married quarters will then increase in size as you have more children and more rank. And certainly I've found in places that, you know, and people get used to living like this, the, it's, you pay a very small rent, which comes out of your pay at source. So what you see in your bank account is spending money. And that is very much the military attitude towards money. Um, and really, all of a sudden, they'll pop out at the end of their careers and realize that they've got nowhere to live. Okay. And or they've been used to a four bed house lifestyle detached in this area, and they can't afford that with their gratuity that they come to leave. So again, this comes down to battlefields of business. It's not just for people in resettlement, it's for every stage through their career to actually give that business and again, that money education, which is all part of it. So that is one aspect of it. The other aspect is the, um, the actual trouble with people being deployed for so long. We've deployed as a nation. As I say, we are generally 90% out of Afghanistan at the minute and deployed operations. We do still have some people away. But people were away for a long time and marriages, relationships suffered. And actually, PTSD was a huge problem and it's a huge problem I think will rear its head a lot more in the next few years. You know, a lot of the trauma from the Afghanistan uh, days, a lot of the trauma from the Iraq days is, is a, is a you know, it's a kettle waiting to explode, really. It really is there. You know, you look at the amount of servicemen, suicides, et cetera. It is there. And what was happening is that was making relationships suffer, divorces, people turning, you know, the the forces was traditionally people do enjoy a drink and they enjoy the social aspect. And it allowed people to divorce, PTSD, having a drink to drown their sorrows. Lo and behold, you were going down that avenue. And it doesn't take long. You know, they generally haven't the, the, they've lived on the, the paycheck lifestyle and people were falling on 
shall we say, very hard times due to circumstance. Yes, it's an individual. They should have possibly planned for that previously, but it, it is there. And, and I think that's a lot to do with how much we were deployed for that entire period. So let's talk a little bit about negativity, Rich, because there's negativity in everything we do. And it's not just in, in business. It's not just, you know, it's everywhere. It yeah. surrounds us. I did a podcast a few weeks ago, just a small soundbite about what I think is the, um, the way to deal with it. How do you deal with negativity? And especially when you're away so much, because um, I imagine that it's not that dissimilar in the army or in the Navy as it is in the police. Yeah, and it is, it is difficult with when you're saying about the, the negativity. Um, and I, you know, I as an individual personally do take a lot, not necessarily to, well, I do take a lot to heart and I'm very, you know, I will always see something through to, to the end. So, you know, if I can put something right or, you know, uh, dealing with negativity does play on my mind until kind of I've put it right. I'm not one who can just turn a blind eye, be very blinkered to it. Um, and, you know, the, it is, it is a very difficult thing. And I think that's, people are very proud in the military to, to try and please everybody. Mm. And that can can again lead to this situation actually of of holding a lot in, should we say that inner inner self destruction? Because on the face of it, again, and it's a very um, you know it's a very male dominated world. The military, you know, there is a you know it's a there is a lot of of, of now fantastic um, females in there. But the, traditionally, you know, when I joined, it was a very male dominated world. Now we've we've got more of an even percentage, which is good to see. But certainly when I joined, and it is that classic situation of of men will put on one face in front of their their colleagues certainly their military colleagues and but inside they are a completely different person and actually they're holding a lot of negativity a lot of self-doubt a lot of you know self-deprivation inside of them rather than speaking out uh, and i think that again with this whole ptsd side of life isn't helping and, and as i say we're, we're now in this situation which is destroying are the people trained to recognize that kind of behavior yeah, so there are now, and actually we're, the, the forces are making concerted efforts to try and do that. And there are trained people. We do have, you know, people, exactly that, trained people and promote the whole speak up, speak amongst your friends. But it doesn't happen to the mm. level it may in other organizations or situations yeah yeah i know the feeling you know if you go to um i mean obviously as a police officer you get to see lots of variety of of, of different lovely things and and not so lovely things and it's almost that your colleagues would ridicule you if you had, you know if you went for counseling or if you felt that you needed to talk out certainly back when i joined it may have changed now but it would almost be a case of oh what do you need to go and talk about that for you know we're rough yeah. tufty police officers we can handle it and that was the environment that we were in but of course we're all human beings you know and our brains are only designed to deal with so much yeah and i think that's exactly it i think certainly if i if i look at you know my past time you know certainly, you know, the deployed operation days like the Iraq and the Afghanistan, if I thought on a day-to-day basis what I saw, you know, we saw a lot, but there was, you were, you were kind of immersed in it in a way. So actually, we probably talked a little bit more when we were in the theater about what was going on. So say you might go on an operation, you discuss it that night. Where I found it actually, where it actually hits home is when you come home, because then you haven't got that close network and you, you're trying to then go back into normal day-to-day life with your family and what have you and certainly I remember you know flying search and rescue for instance you know you would you would be called to all sorts of trauma I remember you know and we'll we'll give you a quick little quick little story I remember being called to a a 12 year old girl who had fallen off a waterfall in the Lake District and we were called we launched from uh, Prestwick uh, west coast of Scotland to go and effectively rescue this this young girl she that's all you get you just get the location quick 
of the incident, what's happened, and off you go. So we launched, we had a paramedic board, and you get to the scene. We sent, you know, we, we were there, we were looking at the scene and assessing it. The weather was really bad. And eventually we picked up this, this young girl and one uh, individual with her. I think it was, it was a leader. She was on some form of, of um, kind of group school scout whatever walking uh, so the leader came up with her and the 12 year old girl and i remember looking around at her and you know that that was trauma she was in a dreadful state um you know she'd fallen about 50 feet off a waterfall she was still alive this poor girl um and we had to get her to glasgow southern general hospital which is where we dropped her off you know she subsequently was all right um you know so there was a a, a happy ending to the story but i remember Finishing that, dropping her, you know, all we looked behind, she was covered in blood. All of her clothing was ripped, some terrible wounds across her face. We landed back on at, at Prestwick, having dropped her at um, Glasgow Southern General and just walked in and carry on, had a cup of tea, put the movie back on exactly where we paused it and life continued. And it's mm-hmm. actually, the more I look back on it and the more the amount of, you know, I did 214 rescues, I think, when I was there, when I talked it up. When I look look back on and, and try and reflect on some of them, it's... It's, it is quite a, you see a lot, shall we say. And I think we, that's why I say it's, it's kind of a ticking time bomb. I think, you know, some people will be able to handle that, but some will just flick one day and all of a sudden it'll change. It's a, it's a difficult situation to see that in one moment. Like you say, police officers, where you will go out to an instant, you'll see something, then all of a sudden you're back to having banter in a crew room or having banter in the, in the office. Or even and at the not, scene, on very, you know, yeah. very often, you know, banter at the scene isn't unheard of as well. Absolutely. Um, because it's just a coping mechanism. And that's um, it. And, and never really discussing it correctly. Yeah, absolutely. It's just coping. Bravado perhaps comes into it a lot, an awful lot as well. Yeah, I think bravado does, yeah. So, Rich, um, yeah, we're coming to the end now of the interview. I want to sort of ask you just a couple of quick fire questions. So, if you can give our listeners, now you've been really successful. You've had a great career in the military. You've forged a great future career in property, and you're doing some great things to help ex service personnel. And of course, you're doing your your business, Battlefields to Business as well. So you've got some great things to look forward to. So if you could give our listeners one tip on how to start, because a lot of people get procrastination, they don't know what to do, and they just then don't do anything. What would that be? Yeah, certainly if it was into business and into property, definitely is focus. Uh, You know, it is about focusing on on definitely, don't be the the classic shiny penny syndrome, focus on one area that you want to to specialize in. And by all means, once you've specialized on that, move to other strategies, but focus initially on one and build a team, build one, a trustworthy team around you, learn quickly who you can trust, but also be trustworthy yourself. And that's what I've found a lot with teams that I work with, actually, if I trust them, they trust me. We build a solid basis of a relationship and very much build that team around you because it's not your full-time job. So you have to rely on the people you work with. And Rich, do you read books? I do read books. What would you say was the most inspirational book you've read? Oh, you're going to hit me one with it. With that. Um, God, it's one a bit, it, it's one probably completely off the radar and one that, that the listeners probably would not have, have heard of, but it's a book called Above All Else. Um, and it's written by an American chap called Dan Brodsky-Chenfield, um, Above All Else. And it's really about his struggles through adversity. Um, and I know kind of that's, it's interesting that the, the world and, you know, is going more into that. So like you've got the the speaker coming, uh, I think to London uh, next week, the American um 
ex-US Navy SEAL. David Goggins. David Goggins, forgot his name, who's coming, you know, the, in a few weeks to do a talk in the UK. Well, Dan was kind of, let's roll back 20 years, very, very similar, had a huge uh, accident, came back from, you know, a very nasty situation and then became world champion in, in his sports and things like that. So a very, very inspirational book. Not down business, not down property, but actually I like to be inspired by what, what the human body and human achievement can do. And that's very much what he can do or what awesome. he has. Awesome. Thank you for that. Rich, finally, if people are interested in your battlefields to business or your charity um, for, your, for your housing projects, et cetera, or indeed if they just want to shoot the breeze with you, how can they contact you? Yeah, so uh, by all means do. Just drop me a message um, on Instagram, which is rich.little. Uh, Facebook, again, richlittle, um, or battlefieldstobusiness.co.uk. Um, you can reach me on this Battlefields to Business uh, on Facebook as well. But by all means, drop me a personal message, rich.little, on, on both your social media platforms, and I'm more than happy to talk. Business, military, have a good bit of banter, speak about anything with anybody. Awesome, Rich. Thank you very much. The audio just cut out right at the end there, um, but I think um, we got the message across. And I think you and I need to catch up and talk a little bit about watches at some point. And yeah. How, how <laughs> the secondhand market has gone. That's for another podcast. Rich, Absolutely. thanks very much indeed for joining us today. No problem. Thanks very much. Cheers. Take care. So folks, that's it for today. If you want to reach out to me, you can contact me on Instagram, which is rickgannon.uk, or of course, you can check us out in our property Facebook group, which is called the HMO and Property Community Group. Thanks for joining us. See you on the next show.